Shalom, and welcome to Heretics Standing at Sinai, a podcast for those in or adjacent to the Jewish community who are searching for a place to deepen their spirituality without sacrificing their rationality. I'm Rabbi J. Tel Rav, and each week we have a conversation about new ways to exist in the world with perspectives as intentional presences and searching for new ways to make our lives mean something. Whether you've been exploring Jewish spirituality for years, or this is your first time considering it, we're glad you're here. I'm joined this week by a very exciting guest. Cantor Micah Morgovsky has served at my side for the last 11 years here at Temple Sinai. She'd already been here for a couple of years when I got here, and she is a partner in every way. She's been a thought partner, a creative partner, a spiritual partner, and it is so fun leading this congregation with her. So I'm just going to turn to Cantor Micah and say welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Well, as we get into the conversation today, I'm just going to start the same way that I do each week, which is to invite you to think aloud about your your journey, spiritual or otherwise. How did you come to be sitting here in my study today talking about Rami Shapiro and spirituality? The path is long and winding, and I've been trying to think about how to condense it into just um, a few points along the way, but I was really thinking it's one of those stories that had one of those things not happened, the course might have been different, you know, so it's sort of like a Dainu sort of thing. When I was four, I was obsessed with the Hebrew letters on the kosher salt box. <laughs> I watched my older cousins on my dad's side become B'nai Mitzvah, and I said, I want that. My parents joined a synagogue because of me. Um, it just so happened that the rabbi of that synagogue was Rabbi Sally Presan, the first woman rabbi ordained. Um, at that time, students at Monmouth Reform Temple, where we were, read the prayers, they read the Torah portion. And I said to the cantor, Cantor Ellen Sussman, no, I, I want to sing like my cousins did. And so everybody sort of let me do what I wanted to do. Um, so you were one of those students that you and I love to get. Oh my gosh, they're they're the dream come true. <laughs> um, and they, yeah, it was it was something I think that was always in me, and I feel like a lot of our students have that, and it's and it's just um, those special people who nurture and draw that out. Um, it, it, that set people on their journeys. Um, so so Rabbi Presand at my bat mitzvah blessed me and told me I should think about becoming a cantor. So, you know, Dainu. Oh, out of curiosity, did she do that publicly or did she whisper it in your ear? No, she whis whispered it in my ear. I had the opportunity to ask her last summer. I was like, did you just say that to everyone? <laughs> she assured me she didn't. Um, so um, I, I was really into theater. I went to Sy Syracuse for musical theater, but it was um, a world of acting and people pretending and I wanted something more authentic. So I started hearing her voice in my head again and decided to go to Israel for a junior year study abroad. That's really interesting. I've never heard you say that before, mm. that the acting world was pretend and that you were looking for something authentic. Yeah. That's a cool addition to how I think of you. Yeah, definitely. Um, it It's exhausting to pretend to be something all the time. And I think part of 
um, my journey as a cantor is to be my most authentic self all the time. You know, we talk about wearing different hats mm -hmm. a lot, but um, kind of trying to wear the same hat. I'm just sitting here <laughs> wondering, is it fair also to say that it's exhausting to be authentic all the time? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And sometimes it's TMI yeah. and, <laughs> and it's like, okay, too much. Hmm. So what are you thinking about these days spiritually? Well, a lot of uh, non-dual Judaism, uh, thanks to you. <laughs> um, and um, I'm sure we'll get there in a little bit, but um, this chapter on human nature, and I struggled a lot with this concept of yesh and in, cause, and then yetzer hatov and yetzer hara, because I kind of was like thinking about them backwards. Mm -hmm. um, for a while. Um, but then, so I think all of it has got me thinking a lot about balance mm -hmm. and that maybe divinity is balance is yeah. one that I've been thinking about a lot. Yeah. Lovely. Well, let's use that as a segue to get into the chapter. Well, we're going to open up, as Cantor just said, to um, to a letter back and forth uh, from Reb Yerachmiel to Aaron Herschel and the topic uh, having just spoken last week about evil, we're going to move to the question of human nature. So we'll do a quick blessing over learning. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher kitshanu b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. My dearest Aaron Herschel, it's good that you're aware of your own personal capacity for evil. Your own ability to rationalize selfishness and excuse wickedness. Admitting this is the first step to controlling it. Now you're concerned that we humans are innately evil, something you heard from a Christian neighbor. You're right to be concerned, but you're wrong to equate what I said with what you've heard. Talk of original sin is totally alien to Judaism, though it's a good way for me to introduce the Jewish view of human nature. As I understand it, and I admit to having but a surface knowledge of this teaching, it is the position of the church, both Catholic and Protestant, that the sin of Adam and Eve is carried by all humanity. Each of us is born bearing that original sin of the original human couple, and the only way to free ourselves from this sin is to believe in Jesus of Nazareth as the only begotten Son of God. For in exchange for our belief, he will cleanse us of our sin. While I am in no position to claim the church is wrong, I can say quite simply that nowhere in the story of Adam and Eve does Torah speak of sin. True, the first couple disobeyed the command of God, but this is not called a sin in Torah. Read your Torah carefully and tell me why Eve violated the only commandment God had laid upon her. It says in Genesis, And the woman perceived that the tree was good for eating, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable as a means to wisdom, and she took of its fruit and ate. Now the Torah does not waste words. Why not simply say, The woman ate? That would have made the point if the point was eating. But the point is not eating. The point is why she ate. First, she sees that the tree is good for eating, but she does not eat. 
Then she sees that it's beautiful to look upon, but she does not eat. Only when she realizes that it is the source of wisdom does she eat. Meaning, it is not desire or beauty that compels the human being, but wisdom. And in quest of wisdom, we're willing to sacrifice everything. We're not driven by sin, but by the quest to know. A wonderful myth, a timeless message. So where is the original sin in this? Jews do not see the eating of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil as the fall of humankind, but as its first step toward fulfilling its destiny. Life in Eden would never have resulted in the awakening of a mind capable of realizing Yesh and Ain as the two poles of God. Eve and Adam had to leave paradise if they were to grow. A second difference between Judaism and Christianity We do not believe that we need the intervention of another to affect our getting right with God. We do not need faith in a Messiah to mend our relationship with God. God is always waiting for us. All we need to do is return, making teshuva, pay attention to the present, and discover the presence. Teshuva and tikkun, returning to God and godliness, are totally up to us. It's a matter of will not faith. Of all the differences between these two faiths, it is the matter of teshuva that is the greatest. Christians do not believe in teshuva. Ultimately, the Son of God can bring you back to God. There is nothing so un-Jewish as this. Our Messiah returns us to Israel. Our decision to make teshuva returns us to God. So when I say that human beings have the capacity for evil, I in no way mean to imply that we are born with some original sin that only a Messiah can forgive. Torah tells us clearly that we are created in the image of God, the one who is both Yesh and Ain. As beings created in God's image, we too must contain both Yesh and Ain, and so we do. In human beings, Yesh and Ain appear as Yetzer Hara, our capacity for evil, and Yetzer Hatov, our capacity for good. The human equivalent of the divine Ain, the Yetzer Hatov, is that innate human capacity for unity. Yetzer Hatov is our ability to bridge differences, to build community, to affect harmony. Without the balancing vision of Yetzer Hara, however, it is also the tendency to erase diversity to ignore uniqueness, to work toward a homogeneity that can be quite dull and even lifeless. Thus, our sages taught that without the Yetzer Hara, a person would not marry or build a home or raise a family, for these rely on our ability to differentiate and to celebrate diversity. Yetzer Hara, despite its unfortunate label, is the human capacity to honor differences, the human equivalent to the divine Yesh. Yetzer Hara sees the differences where Yetzer Hatov sees sameness. Yetzer Hara sees every living thing as an entity unto itself, as unique and apart from the world. Yetzer Hatov sees no separate forms or beings, but the formless unity of God. 
Why call Yetzirahara Ra, evil? Because without the balancing insight of the Yetzir Hatov, the Yetzir Hara's insistence on separate self and independence pits one life against another, destroying any hope for community, justice, and compassion, all of which rely on the notion that we are, at root, one. Yet, a world without Yetzir Hara, a world run solely by Yetzir Hatov, is no less evil. For without the ability to recognize and respect individual differences, justice is reduced to conformity, compassion is reduced to pity, and community is reduced to uniformity. A healthy world needs both Yetzir Hara and its welcoming of and respect for individuality. And Yetzir Hatov, with its insight into interdependence and harmony. Let me try to set this in a more practical context. When you walk in the forest and you come upon an especially beautiful flower, there's an immediate perception of beauty with no sense of I and thou, self or flower. The selfless meeting with the flower arises from Yetzir Hatov, no sense of separation exists. No eye that sees or a flower that is seen. There is only a sense of wonder and beauty. The self and the flower are one in Ain, in divine emptiness. Our initial encounter with the world of Yesh involves no sense of separate self. There is no I. There's only experience, awareness, and knowing but no self who experiences or is aware or knows. In a sense, one can say that our initial encounter with Yesh is from the perspective of Ain. Almost immediately, however, the Yetzer Hara, the inclination for separation, is activated and we say to ourselves, ah, what a beautiful flower! At that moment, self is born. As soon as the flower's beauty is known, there must be a self that knows it. It is the Yetzer Hara, the inclination to discriminate between self and other, that interprets the experience and posits a self. We go from simple wonder and beauty to I see the beautiful flower. Please do not imagine that one way of meeting is good and the other bad. Seeing the flowers through the eyes of Yetzer Hatov is no more a choice we make than seeing the flower through the eyes of Yetzer Hara. Both are completely natural and necessary. This is simply the way we encounter the world. To encounter the world fully means to allow for and to understand both ways of seeing. If you look closely at your meeting with the flower, you will also see that the initial selfless encounter is timeless. There is only the immediacy of beauty. As soon as the Yetzer Hara intervenes with a sense of self and other, I see a beautiful flower, then time enters the equation. Time and self are intimately connected. Indeed, the one cannot be without the other. That is why the experience of Ain appears timeless. Self, time, form, and being are all of the same aspect of reality. End one, and you end them all. 
The human cry for eternal life is but a misguided glimpse into the timeless nature of self-emptying into Ain. If the experience associated with the I is a pleasant one, the self seeks to hold on to it. If it's a negative one, the self seeks to avoid it. Both holding and avoiding lead to unnecessary suffering, because both fly in the face of the transitory nature of reality as experienced by self in time. The world of Yesh is fleeting. It is the world of time, change, impermanence, and death. To seek to control your experiences in this world, either by clinging or avoiding, is to set yourself up for needless disappointment. And yet, this is precisely what the Yetzer Hara tends to do. As long as you live under the dictates of the Yetzer Hara, the illusion of separateness and independence, you will forever seek to control what happens to you. You will strive to hold on to pleasantness and to avoid pain. You will go to great lengths to fulfill your desires and when you're frustrated in your efforts, which must happen since you are not in control of what life brings, then you'll become angry or despairing or both. As long as you identify solely with Yetzer Hara, you will be unbalanced, selfish, isolated, anxious, and prone to all sorts of physical and mental diseases. When you understand the nature of God and yourself as a manifestation of God, you will allow form to be form and emptiness to be emptiness and each to embrace the other without rancor or upset. Think on this and write me when you can. Shalom in peace. Oh, what a great letter! So much good oh stuff. Oh my God! Yeah. Uh, so you wanna you wanna think out loud? What have, what have you been chewing on since you you first engaged with this material? Well, I struggled with as I mentioned earlier this idea of yetzer hara because it it means evil, mm-hmm. but it's not being and and also that the word ain is is to be without is to lack. Yeah. And so I was struggling with the ne- negative connotations mm-hmm. of those words. So it took me a while. And that yesh can be a bad thing, but yesh means to have. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and so just sort of digging in a little bit deeper yeah. to the the intricacy of those concepts. It, um, you're making me think of one of the approaches that Musar uses, which is to say on every character trait, it's a continuum and there are poles. Uh, and ideally, you know, there's a purpose for each extreme. And sometimes we find ourselves there. We shoot for balance, but most importantly, neither extreme is bad. They simply are. And I really love that. I think sometimes people talk about praying to God for the good stuff. And then they ignore or somehow separate the what we call the bad stuff in life. And even calling them good and bad is already setting yourself up for suffering. Just as he said here, pursuing the one, avoiding the other. Um, I think that's a really interesting reversal of, just like you said, how we normally think of a lack or the presence of something. Right. Mm. So that was the first part of understanding this passage. And then, you know, because everything is a song for me, I sent you the lyrics. I don't know if you had time to look at them. One of my favorite songs 
is by Jason Mraz. Do you know it? Not only did I know the song, I went and had to listen to it three times because I love it. It's all about um, the yin and yang and the interconnectedness of all aspects of life you know i'll put uh, a a link to the video and all the lyrics in the transcript but will you read us a little bit yeah it takes some cold to know the sun it takes the one to have the other and it takes no time to fall in love but it takes you years to know what love is it takes some fears to make you trust it takes those tears to make it rust it takes some dust to have it polished. And then the, the chorus is, life is wonderful. Life goes full circle. Life is wonderful. And it's just, it makes me cry in, in its simplicity and just some all-encompassing nature of our existence. To be fair, it doesn't take much to make you cry. It does not take much to make me cry. That is true. I also love this idea of turning on its head ideas that we that I don't go back and examine, I thought it was a beautiful Hiddish, a new idea, and that not only was Eve's choice to eat the fruit not about being duped by the, the serpent and not about being naughty, she was in pursuit of something, yeah. and it was wisdom. What a cool reading. It wasn't the beauty. It wasn't the tastiness. It was wisdom that led her to eat. And then, I mean, it was such a beautiful observation that even Adam could not grow into their fullness when they were in Mitzrayim, in the narrow place of Eden. As long as we're taking things and flipping it on its head, Egypt, Mitzrayim, is thought of as a place where we can't grow. We had to go through liberation to enjoy Sinai. And the two first people, a myth, had to be cast out. But really, it's almost more of a a choice to be born out of the garden. Isn't that what Rami Shapiro is talking about in every single moment when we are at one and recognizing our place in the oneness of the universe, that we have that knowledge inside of us? And yes, I agree that Adam and Eve needed to leave Eden so that they could yearn to get back to it. It's like our idea of Zion and what we would have nothing to strive for. As he says later, you know, we'd never have any drive if we didn't know that we had that and wanted to get back. Oh, that's beautiful. But what does it mean to get back? When I'm listening to you, and now since we're changing everything on its head, all kinds of examples are popping up for me. Is Is it a false narrative that we've created for ourselves when we imagine that it used to be better? Uh, you know, if we want to make something great again, is it a, uh, <laughs> and yes, I chose the expression with uh-huh. intent. Is it a misnomer that we want to go back? Uh, when, you, when you're talking about Adam and Eve knowing what the garden was and then spending time trying to get back, what do you mean? I think it is an admirable fantasy. Mm. You know, we as Reformed Jews talk about Zion, but I don't think we want, you know, the temple rebuilt and and life 2000 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's it's aspirational and it's it is the pursuit that is Eden or mm-hmm. uh, that is Zion. So do we do ourselves a disservice when we have the wrong uh, notion of what we're working towards? If we're working back towards something, have we have we missed an opportunity Let's go with a more traditional definition of teshuva. So Rami uses teshuva as returning to the mindful awareness that it's all one. I love that. That works so well. 
Usually, I've heard Teshuva spoken about as returning oneself to the proper path of behavior. Mm-hmm. On Yom Kippur, we look at the ways in which we stepped off the path and we try to return Teshuva, return to the path of, of right action. So having just compared Judaism to Christianity a little bit mm-hmm. and the notion that a confession or baptism is washing away sin and starting fresh, I think there again is another Jewish idea that we don't wash away anything when we come back to whatever right behavior we're looking for. Like you said, we've got the knowledge of both who we were when we stepped off our path and now that we're back on the path we want to be, hopefully, all of those become part of our, our narrative. Uh, we, we wrap into ourselves the tov and the ra. Well, and you never step back on your path right where you left off you're you're always at some new and different point i like the idea of teshuva and meditation when you know your mind wanders you know when we lose um ourselves in in our busy brain you know we return ourselves to each moment but it's always a different moment and we are always a different self so it's not it's not going back to some place we were. Mm-hmm. It's 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 returning to right where we are. Yeah, you're articulating beautifully that truism that you can't step into the same river twice right. as much as you might like to think that you've gone back to what you knew. What about this um this notion of Yetzer Hatov and Yetzer Hara, which are such powerfully explained ideas? through the vast majority of, of Jewish history, suddenly along comes this guy, Rami Shapiro. And again, I don't know if this is his Hiddish or not, but it's new to me that that it's an unfortunate term to call it Yetzer Hara. Uh, and unfortunate that we call it Yetzer Hatov because each of them comes with real assets and liabilities to one's experience. Uh, have you ever heard that before? No, I mean, this was a new idea for me. It was always very black and white. Yetzer Hatov are our good inclinations. Yetzer Hara are our bad ones. But again, if we're talking about balance, and again, talking about music and, and liturgy, I'm talking about music and liturgy, because that's what I do. You know, thinking about Ma'ariv Aravim, God who creates night and day and day and night, you know, it's it's cyclical. Mm-hmm. And we move back and forth constantly between the the light and the shadow mm-hmm. sides of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, Alana Arian's Yotzer Or, light and darkness, each mm-hmm. and every one, mm-hmm. you know, we can't Yes, we're acknowledging that we have all of this in us. Mm -hmm. And I think what Rami gets to in the end is like it's necessary and that in and of itself is Mm. is God. So it's so consistent through his material, both in this book and and in other material that he's written that I've read. Non-dual thinkers are absolutely committed to getting us away from a notion of good and bad, because that leads to suffering, which has echoes of, of other Eastern traditions in it, that it's when we, we form attachments to people, places, conditions, material, that's when we suffer because it all changes. Uh, so is it human nature that we need to hold on to the poles or is it realistic for us to undo teachings like Yetzer Hatov and Yetzer Hara? We could certainly come up with other expressions for it, but can we can we reclaim that notion of 
um, good and bad. Mm-hmm. When in, a, in, in, from the universe's point of view, there's no good and bad. Right. Yeah, it's, I, I don't know what we would call them, but I want these to be placeholder names. And I'm, an image is coming to mind of, again, another piece of liturgy, Gesher Tzarmaod, you know, where um, Karl Bach translates it as, you know, the whole world's is narrow bridge. The most important thing is not to be afraid, which we know is not really possible. And then Alana Arian says the the most important thing is what's on the other side of fear. Mm-hmm. But if we take the idea of the narrow bridge and the present moment is is the bridge, a very narrow bridge, and perhaps we have one of those tightrope walkers balancing poles mm-hmm. and at one end is Yetzer Hatov and the other end is Yetzer Hara. Mm-hmm. And our job is to walk that present moment of mm-hmm. that narrow bridge. And sometimes we tip the pole one way and sometimes the other and you know is that is that our existence and is it is that moment those fleeting moments of balance is where god is is yeah our understanding of god yeah when you were talking about the the very narrow bridge being the present moment my mind went to one side being the past and one side being the Mm. present eckhart tolle wrote his book the power of now Mm. and human beings we get Duck. We get pulled into the past. All of our regrets and shames and angers and, uh, and grudges, those are all the past. And all of our anxiety uh, and expectation and hope and uh, all of that is the future. Yeah. We're not so good at living in the very present moment. Um, and so I love the idea that that, that, that line of balance is so um, tenuous. Yeah. Um, my daughter is trying to figure out She's trying to understand geometric concepts. And so we've been talking about the nature of a line and how a line has no thickness. That's hard for a, a nine-year-old. It's very um, conceptual. And, and she's still in a concrete phase. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about how if you draw a line, even that has thickness. And a line is where one thing stops and another starts. And so you put two pieces of paper together and where one ends and the other begins, that's a line but you could always cut a line in half and in half again and in half again. So a real line has no thickness. And so I was thinking about that moment. And I think most listeners will relate to this. I know you do. That moment he described of connecting with the flower. And he used the language of I and thou, which is funny because when Reb Yerachmiel, this fictitious rabbi was writing, Martin Buber would never have mm-hmm. written that yet. Uh, but Buber gave us this beautiful notion that there's a magical moment before you re-enter the equation. Mm -hmm. And it feels to me like you're describing that with that very narrow bridge. You know, if you succeed, even for a fleeting moment, you know something beautiful has happened. Yeah, yeah. And in response to that passage about the flower, um, it, it is our experience with meditation also, you know, that moment when we were like, oh, I'm meditating. Shit, I'm not meditating, you know? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and uh, Great, I now I have to put an explicit language to, uh, warning. Out. Yeah. I had a conversation this morning with one of our members, uh, an elder, and she was telling me that she's been finding herself staring out the window and coming back to her herself, so to speak, mm-hmm. and realizing that she'd been daydreaming and didn't accomplish anything mm-hmm. and felt kind of guilty about that. And I assured her that was marvelous, that that's what someone who's practicing meditation is seeking. Yeah. The the ability to be present 
without the awareness of a passage of time or an experience of the other because as soon as you do that you've just you just created an other you've just injected duality into that that ability to be present right do you think rami shapiro is it a tip of the hat to Boober when he talks about I thou? I think it's, the, got, to it's got to be right. Yeah. So there's there is holiness in the I thou relationship. Mm-hmm. So even though it's assigned to Yetzirahara and division, it that it it is also like we're talking about mm. part of the the holy. Jay Michelson used me to the the fuller meaning of the Japanese koan, which is first there's a mountain then there is no mountain, and then there is. Mm. And the idea that you're sitting here, you know, a regular old person looking over and there's a beautiful little mountain. And then you have one of these moments, you're standing right on the narrow bridge, yesh and ain dissolve, and you become truly aware that you're just the same material, literally, as the mountain over there. You know, a different arrangement of stardust. That's all it is. And for that moment, there is no mountain. And then you snap back into it and you realize, ah, no, there is a duality to the world, yet I've tasted the truth of non-duality. And so now you're walking through the world and you're climbing mountains, but you're aware that there's a, a, a oneness of which you are a part and the mountain is, of course, a part. And in Rami's use of the bowl as a metaphor mm-hmm. was so helpful to me that, you know, you can have a bowl-shaped lump of clay but if the middle is full it's not a bowl bowl. you have to have the emptiness that's such a helpful way of of holding on to these concepts i wanted to talk about zentangle a little bit um, because for me that is uh, my most successful uh times of um of ain i guess losing myself in something Mm -hmm. um you know being fully connected to this act of creation for the sake of creation and the experience of flow that I can find myself in much like our congregant who daydreams but time melts away and I am just one with this pen and piece of paper. When you get into Zentangle, right. time just melts away. It does. And yet Zentangle has structure and it has a sort of ceremony and ritual that goes with it. And we talk a lot about the elegance of limits within Zentangle, because as much as you melt away and you do, it's creative and you can do really whatever you want. We still need certain structure to allow us to feel safe and to be able to be creative. Sometimes it's intimidating to have a completely blank slate. And I think that's the Yetzer Hara, the way Rami talks about it. Like we have to understand difference. You you said something about Rabbi Sachs, the dignity of difference, mm-hmm. which made me think of the elegance of limits. You know, we have to know where I end and, and you mm-hmm. begin. Wait, but to go back to what you were just saying about the elegance of limits and the structure in which creativity can really start to flourish, for a little bit there, I could have sworn you were talking about the Jewish prayer service mm-hmm. and the what's known as matbeah tefillah, the set order or um, uh, predictability of a prayer service. But what ends up happening is exactly the opposite. For most people, they get pulled into a book with basically a seder in front of them. And I don't think we've found the right way to 
encourage them into the same kind of creativity that you achieve with Zentangle. And I don't know whether all... I, I've done Zentangle with you twice. Uh, the first time, I didn't get it. Uh, and it was over Zoom, which mm. was very different. The second time, most recently on our meditation retreat, I loved it. You haven't heard me stop talking about it. Um, but I didn't achieve timelessness. Mm -hmm. And I didn't achieve creativity. That would take me a lot more practice. And I might never get there because it's not my modality. But is there is there a way that you and I could imagine guiding people into that experience using Jewish prayer? I definitely think so. I, I think part of how I can get to that place with Zentangle is because I've been doing it nonstop for seven or eight years. Mm -hmm. You know, so I I don't and I also I also tend to work a bit bigger than the little three and a half by three and a half squares because it takes a while to mm -hmm. sort of get into it. So practice is part of it. And that's why we call yoga a practice. Mm -hmm. That's why we call meditation a practice. I think we should, I'm sure many people call it a prayer practice yeah. because you have to know the basics of it and have an understanding of the mapea mm -hmm. and the structure to then free yourself yeah. to to be more creative with yeah. it. Um, yeah. That's part of what we're doing with Poetic License is we, we study intensely a prayer, mm -hmm. its sources, where it goes in the service, who, who wrote it and when, and then we blow it up mm -hmm. and we write our own. Mm -hmm. But we, we can only write our own when we come from a place of knowledge and understanding. Right, right. The other thing which is present in the dynamic you just described is that for everybody who starts Zentangle with you, it's new. And for everybody who goes to a yoga class the first time, it's new. With prayer, it's not new. You have to really work to unlearn some preconceived notions, right. some earlier relationship to it. It's got words sprinkled all through it that have baggage to them. Mm -hmm. What do you call that little thing? Uh, the French word, the little pencil thing that rubs out the... Oh, a tortillon? Yeah, that. <laughs> I've never heard that word before. I didn't have to unlearn any mm. baggage. But it, when we say Baruch Atah Adonai, we're already starting with um, with a, a, a pin in the map, uh, you know, and we have to we have to assure people it's okay to undo their their learning about God. Yeah, it's such a cool opportunity, and yet I find that you and I have had the most success with spiritual environments when we don't even start in that place, like Avodat Halev, our, mm -hmm. our meditation service. We're not asking people, we're not starting with the baggage of traditional prayer. It's so different that they can come in with an open heart. I would argue that we are still anchored in yeah. prayer and liturgy. I, I wanted to play out this the Zentangle metaphor a little bit more with prayer. And I know we're kind of moved away from the text, but I think it's very easy for us when we say Baruch Atah Adonai. It's not Adon. It's not my Lord, this old man in the sky. It's whatever Adonai is nature or love. I've been listening to the previous podcast. You know, it could whatever insert word here that makes you feel something bigger than you. Mm -hmm. And maybe, you know, that's our spiritual tortillon, mm -hmm. you oh, know, nice. you know that the prayers are penciled in for us, but we can blend them. And maybe it's giving people the proper tools like a tortillon to be able to feel free to do that. And it's not an eraser, yeah. but it's a tortillon. That was really well done. <laughs>
I like that. You was, like what I did there? Uh-huh. Yeah, that was great. Um, yeah. Yesterday, uh, the building was full. It was Sunday morning. Lots of stuff going on. One of our congregants came up to me, and he'd heard me say at our Judaism boot camp class that I, because I'm a non-dualist right now, who knows where I'll go <laughs> after this, but because I'm a non-dualist, I open up the prayer book, and I lead prayers, I lead my own prayer, I experience my own prayer, and I'm translating what is very dualistic language into non-dual understandings real time. And maybe it's, I I related to what you said about practice. Mm -hmm. I've been practicing this a long time. And he said to me, will you show me what you do? You know, can you show me what that looks like? And I, I was so impressed that he had the presence of mind to understand that at this moment, he doesn't know how to do it. Mm But it's something he wants to do, and how, how flattering that I could maybe be a partner in that. That's really beautiful. I think we have tools to help people with that, but it's really a personal mm-hmm. journey. Mm-hmm. It would be hard to show someone, well, here's what I do, and yeah. this will work just right for you. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't think we're a one-size-fits-all Judaism. No, no, that's right. I like that you and I see this similarly. We see ourselves as madrachim. Uh, as just partners on the road and not authority figures from on high who dictate what is expected of anyone who wants to take part in Temple Sinai's Judaism. And I think that that's a a real challenge, but such a beautiful opportunity. And I love that at this meditation service that you and I lead once a month and pretty soon twice a month, we've got so many people who would never step foot in a what they think of as a traditional service because it just doesn't create what they're looking for. So I, I can't wait to experiment further and see what else we can create that might continue to do what they're looking for. Yeah. I think Avodot Halev for the people who come is that balance of just enough structure and just enough freedom, just enough yesh and just enough ain, whereas someone else might feel more balanced in a different setting yeah wow anything else you want to bring up any thoughts that you'd looked forward to to Um, jumping into well when you wrote some notes about our time together you you pointed to the the sentence at the top of page 36 where rami says the human cry for eternal life is but a misguided glimpse into the timeless nature of self-emptying into ain um which there's so much there and i'm not sure i totally understand but i was thinking about that a lot and i think this this misguided glimpse is about our our yearning for this phase of our lives this physical embodied part of our lives not to end which we know is impossible and that some of that anxiety that holding of wishing to to live forever or or you know whatever that might look like is is leaving out the part that uh, I know you spoke a lot about Native American wisdom of returning to the earth and um, one of my favorite books um, a kid's book my parents read it to me when I was younger and we read it to our kids as the fall of Freddie the leaf oh yeah and you know Freddie is afraid to to fall it's fall it's autumn and he has a friend who you know essentially reassures him that it's not going to hurt. It's going to be this graceful floating down and landing on the ground and slowly and naturally returning Mm -hmm. to the earth. 
and you know we are Adam from Adama and it is completely natural and I know it's so hard in those moments when we lose someone or think we're going to lose someone mm-hmm. how do we hold on to that understanding and trust that that is true I've got 17 thoughts about mm-hmm. what you just said, but any one of them would just sort of drag us away from the simplicity of what you just said. So I think I'm going to resist the urge to go further with that. Ugh, maybe. <laughs> it doesn't happen all that often, but in our role as clergy, I sometimes come with people who are really afraid of death and especially in times when it's somebody who is very near death when they are terrified for me personally it triggers a great deal of sadness i don't think that i'm going to feel that way when it's my time who knows but i i always wish that they could find peace in the way that you just described well, I, I, it's aspirational for me too. I'm, you know, this fall when my mom was very ill and we didn't know if she was going to live, I was terrified. Yeah. And it was very hard to hold on to any kind of faith and trust and belief in the order of the universe. Mm-hmm. I just wanted my mom to be okay, mm-hmm. you know? So I, I'm still learning, I'm still trying to reconcile my gut feelings about my loved ones Mm -hmm. and what I think is the divine understanding that this is how we are one with the universe. Yeah. J. Michelson really says very clearly, you know, how does a non-dualist deal with moments like you're describing? Uh, Well, she puts it aside and she gets terrified and (laughs) prays to the God that she doesn't believe in and, and, uh, and feels powerfully these dualistic realities that in intellectual moments we might not relate to but in emotional moments and we are both we just embrace and we accept well if anyone listening feels that they are burdened by a a fear of of death or the end for themselves or a loved one maybe together you and I can invite them to seek out one of us and have a conversation about what that could look like and, and other ways to reframe the, the idea. Because when a person is in the moment, it's not the right time to talk about it. So if you're not right now, then maybe it's time to come talk to your clergy. I'd be honored to sit with anyone in that moment of uh, struggle. Speaking of being honored to sit in the moment, Cantor, I'm so honored to sit with you uh today Likewise. and every day till now and and i think you and i've got a long road ahead of us uh sure do. of sitting together and that makes me really happy me too thank you very much for being a part of this conversation you are very welcome it was my honor and pleasure and thank you for asking me and to all of you out there i'm so glad that you've spent this time with us you can click below 
for a transcript of today's conversation, including links to Jason Mraz's song and Jonathan Sachs. And who else did we mention today? Maybe something about Zentangle. Zentangle. And a couple other songs we oh, can link to. Jay Michelson. Oh, yeah. So we'll give you plenty of uh, resources to keep thinking. If you enjoyed this and you want to be notified of the new episodes as they come out, you can click below on the subscribe button and be sure to share this podcast with others that you know would enjoy this kind of thought and conversation. And until next time, all of you heretics out there, stand proud. Stand proud.